Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. We're really, really moving through Romans rather quickly. And you know, I will say, I think that there's, there's something good about um, doing the chapter by chapter approach, moving a little more quickly, because these are particular Romans here. It's, it's a letter. Paul was writing a letter to the Christians in the church in Rome. And one church, one, one gathering, one assembly of believers would receive the letter. They would copy it and send it on to the next place. And that was how the letters circulated. And they would get up in front of the church and just simply read the letters. They would just read the letters to the churches. And so I think that this, uh, this approach, when we just look at it chapter by chapter and, and work our way through, is uh, much closer to, to that approach. And I know there are some pastors that will be in the book of Romans for five to ten years. You know, and that's hard for me to, uh, to imagine that. I know uh, one church, one pastor in particular, all the, the youth group is betting each year what will be the graduating class when he actually finishes Romans. And so um, I, I like this, this flyover approach. So with it, we're moving more quickly through, as I said. And so we have made our way to Romans chapter 7. So let me pray for us and we will dig in. God, once again, I, I can't say how much we, we thank You and how much we love You. And we are grateful that You have saved us, grateful that You have called us out of the world, You set our feet upon the rock, and You have delivered to us Your Word, You have preserved it, and here, here we are with it, God. And I, I pray as we look at Romans chapter 7 that we would be greatly encouraged, that we would be challenged, Lord, we want to learn of You, Father. That's why we gather around Your Word. So I pray that You would open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things, wondrous things from Your Word, O oh God. And please speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. So one of the things I've talked about a lot, I feel, in the last couple months is the law. The law of God. And most often when I refer to it, it's a very one-dimensional thing. I will say something like, God gave us the law so that we could understand that ultimately we're lawbreakers, right? You'll, you'll hear me say that kind of thing. And that is very true. That is true. Ultimately, God's standard, it cannot be kept. And what we come to realize is that we cannot earn favor with God. We can't keep His law perfectly. And we are in desperate need of a Savior. And then when we realize God has sent a Savior, we really appreciate the, the gift that God has given because we recognize our condition when we compare ourselves against the law of God. So that's very true. It's kind of a negative look at the law. And the law of God is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And that's one of the things that Paul is really going to be hitting on in this chapter. I suppose you could say it like this. The law is good and I am not. And that is the problem. Even as a converted Christian, as a, a born-again, spirit-filled believer... We still struggle. There is still a propensity to sin. And we have this issue where we want to do good, but we find that it is such a struggle to do that. And we recognize the problem is not God's law. The law is good. The problem is us. The problem is our sin. And therein lies the battle. And so what we're going to see in this chapter is the law of God versus the law of sin. And I'll get more into that as we go. Uh, but I, I suppose, as I said, you could sub 
categorize this as the law is good and I am not. So I wanted to talk about the law real quick. Just because I have referenced it so much, what, what do I mean when I say the law? Well, first of all, what does the Bible say about the law? Well, Roman, uh, excuse me, Psalm 19, verse 7 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So the law of the Lord is good, and we love God's law. And we don't try to keep God's law so that we can have favor with Him or be saved, but because we love God, because we are saved, because we see the beauty of His law, it is our desire to, to obey God. And so I don't want to say we're keeping the law, but it is important for us to obey God's law. In, in God's law, we see His heart. We see His holiness. There's so much that we understand about Him. That doesn't mean that we're bound to every single ordinance that's in the law. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But I'll simply say this. The, the law, the five books of Moses that you have in the very beginning of your Bible, that is the revelation of God and His holy commandments. Now, sometimes when people talk about the law, they may be in, talking about the entire Old Testament. And Jesus, when doing so, would say the law and the prophets. But, it's, but at the end of the day, that is the law. It's the revelation of God and His holy commandments. And the law was necessarily given to national Israel. You had the, the children of Israel who had been in Egyptian bondage for 400 years. You read of that in Exodus. And then God delivers them out from underneath the, the harsh bondage there in Egypt. And they go out under the leadership of Moses. And now they have to know how to live. In some ways, they don't even know this God that has rescued them. And so God gives them rules by which to live, by which to govern national Israel. And so scholars have calculated there to be about 613 commands. 613. So there's 248 positive commands, 365 negative commands. I think I'd make a great devotional, don't you? 365 days, every day what not to do. And some Christians, that is their, their life, unfortunately. It's a lot of do's and don'ts. And they would, that would probably be a bestseller in the church. And so um, you have these commands, and, and there is a broad list of these commands given in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Exodus chapters 20 through 23 God delivered to them the law. And in that, we, uh, we find uh, the Ten Commandments. And uh, I think that's chapter 20, verses 3 through 17. You'll find the Ten Commandments there. Almost the entire book of Leviticus is uh, laws and ordinance give, uh, given to, uh, to them. Chapters 1 through 7, and then again, 17 through 26. 17 through 26 in Leviticus, those chapters is known as the Holiness Code. It's, uh, it's very practical instruction on godliness. And then Deuteronomy, the last of the five, is sometimes referred to as the second law because what it is, it's a recapitulation of the law 
to the second generation of the Israelites. You'll recall God delivered them out of Egypt, gave His law to them, said, I want you to go to this land. This land is yours. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going you're to kick out the inhabitants of that land and take it for yourself. This was the promised land. Well, they got there. They sent in a team of spies. The spies came back with a bad report. So, well, we can't go in there. We're like grasshoppers compared to those people. They're like giants in the land. And so the people got very discouraged by this. They began to, to complain and, and uh, panic. And so God was greatly displeased with their lack of faith, ultimately. And so He said, you will not go into the land. And so that's why they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness until that whole first generation died off. And then their children, under the leadership of Joshua, went in to take the land. And so right before Moses dies, the whole generation is gone, the new generation has come, Moses gives the law to them before they go into the land, before he passes away. And so that is Deuteronomy sometimes, as I said, referred to as the, the second law for that reason. So what is in the law exactly? And uh, I'll, I'll read it to you. This is a, a lengthy list here, so bear with me. We have civil or societal laws, we have dietary laws, we have moral laws. That's what you ultimately see here. So you have laws regarding worship rituals, sacrifices, holy days and festivals, sanitary laws, exclusion laws, laws about the king, judges and the judicial system, witnesses, law enforcement, refuge cities, prophets, the army, criminals, crimes against God, crimes against society, crimes against sexual morality, Crimes against an individual's person. Crimes against property, stealing, blackmail, and loan fraud. Weights and measures. Lost animals. Boundaries. Laws relating to humane treatment. Protection of animals. Protection of human beings. Laws about personal and family rights. Parents and children. Marriage. Hired servants. Slaves. Aliens. Laws regulating property rights. Lost property. Damaged property, unsafe property, land ownership, inheritance laws, laws regulating other social behaviors. All kinds of stuff in the law of God. It's very extensive. It's very complex, very intricate. But what we see in all of that, that sounds very dry, does it not? That doesn't make for a very good devotional, does it? I mean, you don't get up in the morning and think, man, I can't wait to get into Leviticus today. Most people don't think like that. But what you see in the law, again, is that God is serious. God is holy. He does not tolerate sin. He doesn't play with it. God is a God of order. God is a God of justice and righteousness. And He has all of these things set up into place. And ultimately, this was for the good of the people. God cared about His people. And so God's rules are for their good. God's rules are for our good. And see, that was the thing that Satan tried to, to uh, tempt Eve with in the garden. You know, God gave them this, this command, and then Satan tried to challenge that. You know, did God say this, such and such? And then he says, surely you won't die. Surely you won't. God knows that in the day that you eat of this tree, you're going to be like him. And so that was Satan's tactic there, and to attack the law and make it sound like God was holding out. There was something better for them there, but God's laws were, were a burden and ultimately keeping them from, from really having fulfillment in life. And so many people see God's law that way. Simply not the case. Any parent knows that. When you have parameters set in place for your children, it's not so that you can 
be mean or give them a bad time. It's for their good. And so the law was there to protect the people. And we see so many wonderful things about God's compassion and God's mercy in the law. Oftentimes when people hear the law or think about that, they think of, of you know, really harsh things, um, you know, the, the death sentence and all of these kinds of things that the law is broken. And that is there to be sure. But there are so many laws that are set up to protect the down and out, the weak and the hurting, the, the orphans, the widows, the strangers in the land. I think of just one in particular. Uh, if you were to give your, your cloak or your coat as a pledge, in the law it says that when the sun goes down, you have to give it back even if the person hasn't paid you, because the person may be cold, and how else are they going to keep warm? And so that is an example of how God cared for people's needs and cared for their well-being. And so we see all that in the law. And the law was to be kept, but it was to be kept as a demonstration of an upright heart. Even in the Old Testament, when people kept the law really well, but they had a cold heart towards God, they didn't really love God, they didn't really care about God, God was disgusted by that. He said, I don't care about your rituals. I don't care about your sacrifices. They really are a stench to me because your heart is far from me. And so keeping the law has always been an extension of love. And Jesus takes that up in uh, John. He says, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Why do you say you love me and you don't obey me? And so our obedience to God's law is a demonstration of love. It's not so that we can earn God's love. And as I said before, we're obviously not bound to all of the Old Testament laws. Some of that was specifically for national Israel in that time and place. And be grateful for that because there are, uh, I think half of us in this room would probably be dead by now. We would have been stoned to death for some infraction. You know, just dishonoring your parents. You know, that, Jesus, I think it's either Paul or Jesus, forgive me, refers to um, that law, obeying your parents, that it might go well with you in the land as a, a law with a promise, the only law that comes with a promise attached. And that is, if you obey your parents, it will go well for you. You'll live long and prosper in the land. That's because if you don't, it will go very badly for you. You would get taken out and stoned uh, for disobedience, and that was serious. And so... Um, there's a very real sense in which we're grateful that we are not bound to the Old Testament law in that sense. But there is a very real sense in which we want to honor God's law and observe it where it's appropriate, where, where it's applicable. So much of it is principles that transcend into now, the here and now. Um, and so we still honor God's law. We uphold it as good, as pure, as right. And then in the New Testament, it's slightly different. You know, Jesus said really all of the law is condensed into two commands. Anybody know what those are? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said all the law and the prophets hang on those two laws. And so the idea is, is that if you are really loving God with all that you have, all of your mind, all of your heart, all of your strength. Some people love God with all their heart and their mind just checks out. It's mindless. Some people love God with all their mind and it is no heart. It is dry. Um, but we're to love God with all of our mind, all of our heart, with all of our energy. We're to work that out physically as well. And if we're doing that and loving other people the same, you're going to be keeping the law automatically. 
automatically. That's what Jesus is saying. That is the essence. That is the heart of the law. Love God and love each other. And then in the New Testament, there are so many commands given, us to, uh, given to us by Jesus Himself and the apostles. But I would encourage you to check this out for yourself. There's something called the one another commandments. And I think there's like 47 of them in the New Testament. The word, the phrase, one another is used roughly 100 times, but 47 of those times it's commands to the church. Love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, and on and on it goes. And you can look that up, you can Google that, um, the Bible Overview Project, I think is what it's called, and it has all of that stuff really uh, laid out for you. And so those are what we refer to as one another commands. And so the, we are still to observe the commandments of God. We are still to love God's law. You know, Psalm 1 says, uh, the man who meditates on the law day and night will be blessed. He will prosper It'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of, of water. So when we meditate on God's law and we seek to, to obey those things, <clears throat> we will be blessed. God blesses that. Did you know that? And so that's my encouragement. We're to be those who love God's law and obey it. The law is good, but the problem is what? Us. The problem is sin. Sin that dwells in us. And that's what we're going to see in Romans chapter 7. So let's go ahead and pick up. So the first portion, I would say verses 1 through 6, we're talking about the extent of the law. The extent of the law. And in this sense, Paul is talking about being bound to the law and being accountable to God by the law. Um, kind of the negative aspect that, that I have hit on so many times. So that's what Paul is dealing with in this portion. So here, the extent of the law, it's until death has dominion over a person until they die. So verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man... Um, she will be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no longer an adulteress, though she has married another man. She is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So, Paul says, I'm talking to those who know the law. It's amazing to me. I don't think I ever really noticed this before. I just kind of assumed, because Paul was writing to the Christians in Rome, that this was uh, predominantly to the Gentiles. But it has really uh, stood out to me from chapter 1 till now just how often he's addressing the Jews. And he says here to those who know the law, and that would be Gentiles too, anyone who considers themselves bound or, or under the law of God. He says, the law has dominion over you as long as you live. And so this is in keeping with chapter 6. You remember guys, we talked about how we were uh, under the, the dominating power of sin until what? Until we died until we died with Christ. And so just as Christ died and rose again, we died, the old man died, and we rose into the newness of the life. Paul kind of carrying that same theme on into chapter 7, and now he's talking about the law and the extent of it. Under the law until one dies. And so Paul's going to use marriage as an illustration here. Now this is not a perfect illustration and it, the application is clear, however, and this is also not a, a teaching on marriage and divorce um, because the Bible makes clear 
there are times when divorce is, is permissible uh, and not just when the spouse dies. So that's not really what's going on here. Paul is simply making uh, a, a point. It's clear, it's plain, and it's this, that just as a, a woman is bound to her husband and vice versa, under the law, when one dies, they're set free from that law of marriage. And so we are under God's law. We answer to God on the basis of the law where we stand condemned before Him because we can't keep His law. But when we died with Christ, we have died not only to sin, but we've died to the law as well. So we're no longer accountable to the law. We are alive in Christ and free from the law. So verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised, who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So we're dead to the curse of the law, but we are married or bound to Christ. And I, I love that language. Uh, we are married to another. Uh, we are bound to Him. It says that we would bear fruit to God. When we were under the law, there was no fruit there. You know, and let me also say this. I'm talking about the law in the Old Testament sense here, but we all kind of put ourselves under laws. I think we've all kind of, in some sense, created our own laws. It's a standard that we try to live by, right? And some people's standards are really unbearable. I mean, you can't keep your own standard. And that's kind of how I feel in times past. I kind of have this, this system worked out in my mind of all the things I, I think I ought to be doing, and I can never keep that standard. And I, I remember, I, I think I told you all this, one time I think for like a week, I thought I did pretty good with my list. And I just thought, and I felt miserable somehow still. Even though I, I checked all the boxes, I, I didn't feel any closer to God. I didn't feel any more spiritual. And then I, that was about as long as it went anyways. And so it's, uh, you can't keep your own law. You can't keep your own standard, let alone God's. But then you have people who set the law really low. They have very loose and lax standards. And the same is, is true. It's still an imperfect law. And that doesn't get you anywhere in the sight of God. So even if it's not the Old Testament law per se, we all have laws. And either it's so strict that we can't keep it or it's so loose it just doesn't measure up anyway. So... Just being set free from that whole way of thinking. Being set free from that. We've died to sin. We've died to the law. We've died to our own standards and regulations. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. And now we're bound to Him. We're married to Jesus that we would bear good fruit. Because our, our rules and regulations, standards, didn't bear fruit. You know what that brought forth was frustration, discouragement, despair. There's no fruit there. But now that we are bound to Christ, now that we are found in Him, we bear much fruit. And that's what Jesus was talking about in John 15:5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in Him bears much fruit. For without Me you can do nothing. So the fruitful Christian life, it's apart from the law. It's found in Christ. So we are dead to sin, dead to the law, alive in Jesus, bound to Him, and we are living fruitful lives, lives that are pleasing to God, lives that are a blessing to other people, to our family, to our community, wherever God has planted you. We are blessed. We are blessed people because we are connected to 
the God who loves us and who saved us and He is working in our lives and we are bearing fruit. That is the fruitful Christian life. It's not under the law, it's under grace and it's because we're bound to Jesus, the One who brings about fruit in our life. And we can't do anything apart from Jesus. Amen? Uh, and he makes that very clear. You can do nothing apart from Me. And that is the truth. At least in my life, that's been my experience. Um, anything good that comes in, from my life or in my life is, is when I'm close to the Lord. Um, the, the junk that comes out, that's all me. I take full responsibility for that. And, that. and it really ramps up when I get farther from the Lord, you know? And so verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So sin was aroused by the law. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And it produced rotten fruit, ultimately. It produced death in us. Now having died to the law, we're no longer held by it. We're no longer bound by it. And we serve in the newness of the Spirit. I love that. We serve now in the newness of the Spirit. The law is not a harsh taskmaster over us. We are set free from that. Now we serve from a place of love and adoration. That's why we do what we do. We serve because we love the Lord, because we know what He has done for us. And it creates within us this overwhelming desire to love Him and to serve Him. And that is serving in the newness of the Spirit. And it's Spirit-empowered service. Spirit-empowered love. Spirit-empowered obedience. You know, it's not like I could obey any better now than I could then unless for the power of uh, the Holy Spirit in my life. And so now my relation to God has changed. It's not one of a legal contract. It's one of being alive in the Spirit, walking with the Lord in love and serving by the power of His Spirit, obeying by the power of His Spirit. And it says in, I think, Zechariah, not by power nor by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And that is the case. That is the case. And so now we have this this relationship with God in the Spirit, no longer under the harsh letter of the law. All right, well, now moving into the next portion of this chapter, we're going to talk about the effect of the law. What does the law actually do outside of Christ? And it arouses sin. It arouses sin, verses 7 through 13 here. So let's move into it. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. And look, there's that phrase again. So Paul's still going on with the asking the question and then answering it. And that, that really strong language of certainly not. God forbid. May it never be. So, is the law sin? No way. Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So, is the law sin? Is the law sinful? No. A big resounding no. That's what Paul said. The problem is me. 
the problem is my flesh. The sin lies with me, not with God's law. And so the law simply demonstrates that. The good and holy law of God simply demonstrates that I have sin, sinful tendencies and propensities. And Paul uses covetousness as an example. You didn't even know that you wanted it until you couldn't have it. Right? Isn't that what it boils right down to? And so Paul uses that as an example, covetousness. When he saw that he shall not covet, that that's not allowed, what happened? He became very covetous all of a sudden. Weird, huh? How that works. And so he's using this as a very plain and clear demonstration of how the law will do that. It will arouse sin. It will make it manifest to us. So verse 9 he says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. So this idea of being alive without the law, that is to say he was unaware, just absolutely oblivious to his own condition. And such is the case. Outside of Christ, when we're dead in our trespass and sin, when we are uh, children of wrath, we're under God's wrath, um, we're oblivious to, to our condition. And we're just going on about our business, loving sin and doing our thing. So unaware and oblivious to one's condition. But the commandment came, he says, and sin revived and I died. Self-awareness. The reality of sin comes. And then the reality of condemnation. The reality of guilt comes. And I would say that Adam and Eve was a, a great picture of this, right? They were in the garden. They were naked. They didn't know it. And then they ate of the, the tree that they were not to eat of, and then what? They became guilty and they knew it. And all of a sudden they realized they were naked and they felt shame. And so what was their first uh, course of action was to go and try to cover themselves. And so they sewed together fig leaves and they made a covering for themselves. That's man's first religion. Man-made religion right there. The attempt to cover yourself. The attempt to cover one's own sins. But they became aware of it. And the reality of it became very real to them. And so the commandment brought death. They had been given a commandment. They were told not to eat of that fruit. And they did. And then came sin, guilt, the awareness of it, the shame of it. And it brought death ultimately. Verse 11, For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. So the law is pure. All right, I think we've already made that clear. It's true, it's holy, it's just, it's good. The law is not the problem. What is? We are. Sin is. That's the problem. Now, sin is corrupt. It's wicked. It's deceptive. And it's aggressive. Genesis 4-7, when God was talking to Cain, they, Cain brought uh, the fruit of the ground to offer to God, and Abel brought uh, an animal sacrifice to God, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but He did not accept Cain's, right? Cain's countenance fell. He was angry. And God says, why did your countenance fall? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you don't, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That's what 
God said to Cain. And that's, that's kind of eerie language. Sin is creeping at the door and it is, its desire is for you. That means its desire is to master you, to rule over you, to dominate you. And so God's law is pure, true, holy, just, good. Sin is corrupt, wicked, deceptive, and aggressive. And Paul was deceived by sin. Paul, you know what Paul's deception was? Was thinking that he could be good enough. Paul was deceived into thinking that his credentials did add up. And that his pedigree and that his education and that his externals, all of that had him in, in God's good graces. That was the deception. That was the sin. Self-righteousness. And then Paul came to the realization of his spiritual bankruptcy. He talks about that in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4-9. through nine. He outlines all of those things that he thought had him uh, ahead in the game and realized that it actually had him in the negative. He was actually in the red. He was bankrupt and didn't even realize it. The law had not saved him. By it, he was dead and accountable to God and didn't even know it. Didn't even know it. So verse 13 has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. So there it is again. He asks the question, responds with that strong language. He says this, But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So again, the law is only good, and one is condemned by the law because of his sin, not because the law is bad or inherently evil or out to get him. The law makes sin, as it says here, exceedingly sinful. That is to say, it makes it apparent. It makes it very clear what sin is. In light of God's holy law, sin is very dark, it's very ugly, and it's very evident. And so that leads us to uh, the last section, and this is really where I wanted to get to here. I, I would say this is the crux of the chapter, and I know that this is probably the portion that we all are so familiar with and really relate with. You know, last week we talked about the fact that we were dead. Uh, dead to sin, alive to God. We have died with Christ, risen into the newness of life, and we're told by Paul that we have to reckon ourselves to be such. We have to... Put it down. It's in the bank. It's a, that check is good. You can cash that. It's the truth. We have to consider ourselves, reckon ourselves, account ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That is our, our identity. That is our position before God and it's been secured for us in Jesus. That's what God sees when He looks on you if you are in Christ. That doesn't change. But you know what? I feel much more like this guy in Romans chapter 7. I can relate with this. Can't you? Uh, if you're familiar with this story or with this portion of Scripture, you know what I mean. If not, you'll see what I mean here in a second. And that's the reality. There is, there is this juxtaposition between who we are in Christ and how God sees us and then the struggles that we still face here in this life day to day. We want to do good. But with all of, all of our, our struggles, we seem to fall short. Seem to fall short. And so Paul is going to deal with this. Now I've titled this, The Essence of the Law. This portion right here, The Essence of the Law. It is pure and it is holy, but you know what the problem is? Me. It's sin in my life. And therein lies the battle. 
So there's a war here between the law of God, which is good, and sin, which is bad, which is wicked, it's corrupt, it's aggressive, it's deceptive. And so this is the battle that goes on for every believer. Now let me say this. There are people who believe, there are scholars and pastors who believe that Paul is talking about himself here as an unbeliever. As this is before Paul's conversion. He's, he, and I used to think that was a very rare uh, interpretation, but I've come to realize more people than I, than I thought do believe that. I, I cannot believe that because there are, are phrases here that Paul uses that can only describe a believer. And so he says, you know, I delight in the law of God according to my inward man. Well, there you have it. Outside of Christ, there is no inward man delighting in the law of God. There was no delight in the law of God, period. And all there was was the old man in Adam who was at enmity against God. But in the new man... That old man is dead, and now we delight in the law of God. You understand? And so that's why I have to believe that Paul is talking about the struggle of a Christian. The everyday struggle of a Christian. That even though we have been saved and we stand justified before God, and remember, that's a huge part of this book is the idea of justification. Even though we're justified, we still struggle this side of glory. We still struggle. And so Paul's going to outline that now as we move on. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree that the law is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So here, Paul says, look, the essence of the law, the law is good. The law is spiritual. That is, it's emanating from God Himself who is spirit. And it is transcendent. It's from outside of ourselves. It's from outside of our world. We are carnal. We are flesh. But God's law is pure. It is spiritual. And it comes from outside. You know, a lot of people in this world would tell you you've got to go inside for truth. You've got to go in. Because ultimately there's good in there. Well, that's not what Paul says. What's really in here is bad and God's truth is spiritual and good and it comes from outside of us. And so he says, God's law is spiritual. The problem is I am carnal, sold under sin. Carnal here, it literally means of flesh. And you will often hear that kind of language in Christianity. My flesh, this corrupt flesh. And here's the deal. Rob has been redeemed. I am redeemed. I am new in Christ. But this flesh here is not redeemed. It will go into the grave and it will rot. And the new man, Rob Rainey, will go into heaven and one day will get a new body, a glorified body. But this body is left here to, de- to die and decay. And so I have a redeemed. I'm redeemed. I'm new. You're new if you put your trust in Christ. <clears throat> You can now interact with God, respond to God. You have new desires, you have new passions, you have a new love. But there's still this war in your body. And that is because in the flesh we are still earthbound, mortal, and incarcerated in unredeemed humanness. This is according to MacArthur. This is how he describes it. We have sinful propensities that are intertwined with physical weakness and pleasures. Right? Such as the snooze button. 
You know, that's the, that is a, an enemy to my soul. I wake up in the morning and the battle is joined. As soon as that, that thing starts beeping, what am I going to do? I'm going to hit that snooze button or I'm going to get out of bed? And so um, that's kind of silly, but overindulgence, the lustful eye, angry outburst, gossip, etc., etc., etc. These are the things that we still have to deal with. These are the things that are still alive in our bodies that the new man hates. The new man loves God and desires to do His will and to obey His Word. But there's this part, this, this evil that is present with us, this sin that is still very alive that we have to fight against, and so the battle is joined. And Paul says, what I am doing, I do not understand. That is to say, um, except the word understand here, it generally carries this idea of intimate knowledge. Um, but by extension, it can mean to accept or approve. And so Paul's saying, what I'm doing, I don't approve of it. I can't accept it. Or it could simply mean, I don't understand why I do it. But he says, what I will to do, I do not practice. And so the things we know we should do, but can't. And he says, what I hate, that I do. The things that we know we shouldn't do, but cannot seem to stop. He says, I agree with the law that it is good. The problem is not the law. The problem is me. The problem is sin in my life. He says, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so this describes the internal conflict between the spirit and the flesh. In Galatians 5, 16 and 17, Paul talks about this. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. That is the battle. There is the, the Spirit that dwells in me, that desires the things of God. And then there is this flesh. And there is this battle that's happening. And that is... That is what rages on. You know, the war has been won. We already know the end. We will stand glorified with God, but the battle still rages on, does it not? And so every day we have to choose. Are we going to walk in the Spirit? Or are we going to fulfill the lust of the flesh? Because you can't do both. They are absolutely contrary to each other. And as I've already said, this walking in the Spirit is not some mystical, weird stuff. It's simple obedience. Are you going to obey the Spirit or are you going to obey the flesh? And this is the battle. So verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul says, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And that is just the truth of it. You know, apart from God, apart from His Spirit working in our lives, there's nothing good in me. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many people really know that about themselves. I think oftentimes we have a very high view of ourselves. They think that in me dwells all kinds of good things. And, I mean, Christians think that too. And so, just recognizing that God even saving me, it was not because there was anything inherently good about me, and there was nothing in me really that would respond to God. God 
sought me out because He is gracious and merciful and God saved me. And so, Paul says, to will is present, but how to perform I do not find. And I couldn't help but think about Jesus in the garden. You remember He was getting ready to be betrayed and He kept asking the disciples to pray with Him and He kept coming back and finding them what? Sleeping. Sleeping. And, you know... Peter had already been boasting about how when this happened, because Jesus had told him he was going to be betrayed and that they were going to abandon him. And Peter said, hey, they might abandon you. I won't. I will die with you. So that was Peter. Peter thought in his flesh there were all kinds of good things and that he within himself was strong and that he was faithful and that he would go with Jesus. He couldn't even stay awake and pray. And then Jesus said this, pray that you don't enter into temptation because... The spirit is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. And so Jesus already knew. That he may have had good intentions, and He may have thought that He was really going to go the distance, but Jesus understood all too well the flesh is weak. And Peter was depending upon the strength of his flesh to get the job done. And what happened? Man, when, they, when the, the guards and the, uh, the uh, police showed up to get Jesus... I had a buddy that used to use the phrase, they were singing like the temptations. I mean, they were crying. They were out of there, man. They were gone. And so, Jesus knew it. What you're saying sounds good, but the flesh is weak. And Paul, he resonated with that. And he said, it's no longer I with sin that dwells in me. Because he can say it's not me, but it's the sin that dwells in me because me is the new man in Christ. That is who is going to go and be with God one day. Me, I, this consciousness. You know, the new man in Jesus. But this flesh, it is sinful. It has sinful propensities. And that is what uh, creates the issue here. So verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me and the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. There's that phrase there. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So Paul said, I find a law. Now this is not the same as what we mean when we talk about the law of God. He's talking about some sort of a force or influence compelling to action. And I would also say we use this in the sense of like the laws of gravity or the law of nature. The laws of nature. We know what to expect. It, it's cyclical. And we know the sun's going to go up and come down. We know that the seasons change. Uh, we, we get all of that. And so it's a law of nature. And so Paul is talking about this law that dwells in him of sin. It's a force. It is powerful. It is deceptive. It is aggressive it is corrupt and he says that is the the issue it's no longer me but it's the sin that dwells in me and he says i delight in the law of god according to the inward man but there's another law in my members waging war against the law of my mind bringing me back into captivity now that's the issue right there are you going to go back into captivity in galatians paul talks about how you've been set free. It's for freedom that you've been set free. No longer entangle yourselves again to a yoke of bondage. Don't go back under the law. 
Don't go back. Don't resubmit yourself to it. You've been set free from that. And so we've been set free from sin. We are new in Christ. We're no longer in Adam. We're found in Jesus. There's this war in our bodies. And we have to determine what are we going to do. Are we going to walk in the Spirit? Are we going to walk in the flesh? Who are we going to serve? Remember we talked about that last week? The one to whom you serve, that's who you are a slave to ultimately. A slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And Paul says, we have reckoned the old man dead. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're now slaves to God and to righteousness. So, verse 24, Paul says this, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. You know, I, I relate with Paul in all of this. I think we all do, if we're honest. And Paul saw himself as a wretched man. He referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Now, Paul was a mighty man of God. I mean, the things that he did, his, the, the, his walk with the Lord, I doubt any of us would ever attain to that, but Paul still understood his sinful condition. And Paul was greatly grieved by it. And he could say, O wretched man that I am. He could say, I am the chief of all sinners. And then this, who will deliver me from this body of death? First off, I want to speak to this body of death. And you've probably heard me tell this story before, but it's been said that there was a, um, there was a, a tribe in Tarsus, I believe it is, that used to practice this um, capital punishment. If a person killed someone and they found the body, they would tie the body to the, to the murderer. And uh, it was a slow death, basically, as the body was corrupting, the dead body and um, the, the rot and decay, the, the pus of the body gets on you and the maggots that's eating the body is slowly eating you. I mean, that's really gross, I know, and, and graphic, but I think that's what Paul may have in mind here when he's talking about this body of death, this sin. And he said, who will deliver me from this? And I love that. The answer is in a person. The answer is in a person. It's not in steps. It's not in seven easy steps. It's not in twelve steps. It's not in a program. It's in a person. Deliverance comes from a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And he said, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so therein lies salvation. Therein lies freedom knowing that we have been set free because we have died with Christ, we have risen again into the newness of life, it is no longer us as uh, children of Adam dwelling in sin, but it is the new man in Christ who is alive unto God, and though we battle with sin, we know that one day we will be totally set free, we will be glorified, there is the deliverance. This body of death will be long gone. And we will be new and glorified in Him with a new body. And we can rejoice and celebrate with God without any distraction, without temptations, without regrets, without fear and anxiety, any of those things. And we look forward to that day. We long for that day. So we thank God here and now that Jesus has saved us and that we are anew in Him, and we thank God and we celebrate and rejoice in the day when we will be completely glorified and there will be no more battle. Delivery comes only from Jesus. Deliverance comes only from Him. And it's in Him that we celebrate. So, 
just recapping here. The law of God is good. We love God's law. I would encourage you, get serious about understanding God's law from cover to cover. We love God's law. We are no longer bound by it. We're not under the power of the law. We've been set free from the curse of the law because we have died in Christ and risen again into the newness of of life. And we love God's law. We desire to keep it. But there's a battle that rages within our members. Though the inward man rejoices in the law of God, there is this battle that rages between that and the flesh. And we recognize that if there's any victory in this life, if there's any, any hope, it comes from Jesus Christ alone. Amen? And we recognize that in the end, when we do have complete and total victory, it will be because of Jesus Christ. And we will worship Him forever and ever with complete, total, pure praise. Amen? Alright, let me pray for us. Father, we love You. And we can't thank You enough, God, for saving us. Thank You, Lord, that we are redeemed, that we are new, that we have been justified, we are forgiven, and that we are walking in the newness of life. God, help us with those struggles that all of us in here are facing because none of us are without that. We all, we all struggle to some degree. James even says that we all stumble in many ways. But Father, I thank You, God, that You who began a good work in us are faithful to complete it. I thank You for all the victories that we've already had to date. thank You that none of us in here who are in Christ are the same. We're not who we used to be. thank You, God, that we will continue to grow into Christ-likeness. I thank You for the victories that are to come. And I thank You, God, for the deeper level of obedience and holiness and love that we will walk in, God. And I thank You that there will be a day when we will be totally delivered and that we will be completely new and that we will worship you in glory god so we praise you in jesus name amen all right guys you are dismissed